It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 280, The Sermon on the Mount, Part 1. The Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5-7, through 7, in my opinion, is the greatest sermon ever written or spoken. It's the greatest sermon in world history spoken by Jesus, God in the flesh. Want to know about Christianity, the New Covenant? Here it is, its first sermon. The greatest ever spoken, ever taught by anywhere, any time. It's the upside-down kingdom, the true character of Jesus, the great contradiction, the Sermon on the Mount. All right, we'll dive in here in a second, but you have to put yourself in the shoes of the eyewitness. Um, I remember a book growing up uh, I read one time, it was Eyewitness History, and it was super interesting, so it was almost written like a fictional account of a historical event, but the point was that they wanted to put you in the character of the moment in history to feel and to see it and experience it for yourself. Every word of this sermon uh, would have been accompanied by sheer bliss. Uh, can I say that? Of being at the feet of Jesus or looking upon the face of God. There would be a peace, a presence uh, would have filled the atmosphere. You ever have that moment when all the hairs on your arms stand up? You get the chills, right? Um, I had a friend, he called it the Holy Spirit goosebumps. Uh, when someone said something that just made him feel alive inside or or he heard something in a sermon and it was just right for him at that moment. Now, multiply this for hours because Jesus himself in the flesh speaks these words. Yet in the midst of this overwhelming power of God, Jesus speaks the to the opposites of worldly power. His message will fly in the face of control, manipulation, power, and man's understanding of the world. It flies in the face of the glory of Rome, Herod, the Greco-Roman system, the world empires, the conquest of heroes who dominate the earth with power, conquest, brilliance of strategy and might, um, the glory of armies taking the field. This is Jesus talking about now the meek are going to inherit the earth. Jesus comes um, and in a sermon thousands of years in the making, Jesus declares the kingdom goes to the humble, the humble, the humble, the, the meek, the peacemakers, comfort to those who mourn, and a blessing for the hungry and the merciful, blessings to the persecuted and the peacemakers. It's the character of Jesus, and it's God's work on the earth. Uh, we are going around, it was Valentine's Day this morning with the family, and what are you thankful for? Or what are you just um, excited about today? Or just, I don't know, just some random thoughts. But um, it kind of turned into a prayer for all of us at our kind of kitchen table. Uh, but I I was thankful for, and I'm just kind of hit by this point, that God came in love. 
right? Like he, Jesus came in love, right? He could have came in power, could have came in miracles, he could have came as a judge. Instead, he came in love and mercy. And, and that's what Jesus is revealing in a time of control um, and power, um, you know, and great religion. And said he came in love and he just overwhelmed the world uh, with his compassion. Uh, with this compassion came a power um, and miracles would flow through it, uh, but revealing his love. And that was the main purpose. And of course, that's the greatest commandment. Matthew 5. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. I do love how he sat. I've said it many times. Uh, there was probably thousands here, and he found some sort of natural amphitheater, and he taught them, making use, use of the natural land and terrain, because there were so many there. Matthew 5, 2, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely call all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I once heard a eight or nine part series on every one of these lines, um, and it was actually by uh, who was it Cheon, um, who's a pastor of Harvest Rock Church in Pasadena, California, and it was funny because the pastor went through something every week as he prepared for his sermon. It was amazing, and and every week he told a fresh story of how he was persecuted against, or he had to be humble or meek, and, but I'm not surprised. It reminds me when my wife prayed for patience. It was like her whole world fell apart around her and nothing went right. Well, in the end, at the end of the week, she learned patience. Uh, she learned the character of patience because of what she learned. It was Christ-like character that she, um, she learned. The funny thing is that at the end of the week, a lady at our church asked her to pray for her because she needed more patience. Well, Janelle prayed despite having this scary thought that she'd experience a horrid week just like she did, but instead at the end of the week, the lady she prayed for told her she had never had so much peace than she did that week. In this case, um, it was Christ-like character imparted. So Janelle got the breakthrough that she was able to later give away. And this is a tiny example of Christians becoming more Christ-like every day. Um, she could have prayed for solutions and wisdom for her problems, but instead she prayed for the character to understand them and to walk through them, and that's what she got. Jesus, well, he rewards humility, meekness, mercy, and hunger. That's what he does. Hunger is something I call the secret sauce of the spiritual life. Um, the reason's interesting. We know hunger as a need for food to satisfy our stomach for a time. Um, a, a godly hunger is a hunger to fill your heart with joy, your mind with wisdom, your soul with truth, and it's forever filling. While your spirit needs to remain full 
so does your heart, mind, and soul. If you hunger for God, well, like Jesus says, you'll be filled. Hunger for God is similar to hunger for food. Just for fun, Jesus said after meeting the Samaritan woman, my food is to do the will of my Father. Jesus implied his soul was filled with doing the good works of his Father. Jesus connected the spiritual and the physical hunger here with simplicity of language in the moment. Another aspect of hunger is the the promises of God. I've seen people who wouldn't normally receive you know, an astounding move of God in their lives, um, but they relentlessly pursued God. I've seen a sinner run to God with such an insane pace, he was saved and delivered without this 12-step process, right? Um, the long character building many, many of us go through. I've seen radicals transform when they just literally turn to God. I've seen immature believers have crazy answers to prayer, while stout veterans of the faith receive little answers. The reason, and not always, right? I mean, this is just in some cases, it's hunger. Without preconceived notions of what God looks like in any formality of religion, I've noticed the hurting and the desperate ones are more, uh, they quickly receive their answers versus the veteran Christian who thinks he has it all together. It's hunger. It's an aggressive hunger. I am hungry to see God move. I am hungry to see his answers. I'm hungry to see him do what he did in the past. Do it again, God. You, you, you brought revival. Do it again, God. At the same time, faith is taking a scripture and the promise of it and taking it back to God over and over and over and over until you receive your answer. It's hunger. It's the relentless widow who wore out the wicked judge. Ask and you will receive. That's what it says. And if it's in the word, it's his will. He will answer. I have many unanswered prayers, but I keep praying them. I'm hungering to receive my answers to these prayers, and I will get them because it's promised. I, I hunger to see revival, unity in the church, a wide-sweeping change over society. No more division, but breakthroughs in the spirit, a reformation of sorts all over society. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This one messes with me. The pure in heart will see God. See God. Just think on that. They will see God. I, I want to see God. I want to see God. I, I, I want to see him move. I want to answer prayer and change the earth. The Bible's filled with similar verses. Here's one. James 5.16. The prayer of a righteous man avails much. Basically, a person who has devoted their life to God and lived for him with purity of heart and deed, they will see God. They will see him move. John says many times that God will give us all things. Whatever you ask for in prayer, you will have it. The one caveat to that prayer is your prayers have to be God's prayer for you. Uh, You must be in lockstep with God. The prayers in the Spirit or prayers from heaven through you, they will be answered. Or any prayer that's consistent with God's word, you will answer. It's what he does. So those who are committed and truly surrender to God, they are pure. And by the blood of Jesus, they will see God move. But in the literal sense of the word, they will see God and walk with them face to face in heaven one day. Let's look at one of the disciples and know how he did see God. And not only this, he escaped death more than once. John the Apostle was the only apostle who didn't run when Jesus was taken. After his three years of ministry, he stood there at the cross and endured it. He was faithful to the end. And little John, 
was even given the responsibility of caring for Jesus' mom. But as all the other disciples are killed for their faith, one account has John being poisoned, another one has him burned, another thrown to the wild animals, but regardless, they couldn't kill him. They banished him to the Isle of Patmos, where he sees Jesus again in a mighty vision. But not only this, he also saw the end of the age. The disciple who didn't deny Jesus was the one who did see him. The pure in heart will see God. And I want to see God. How about you? Blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs is the kingdom. How true is that? Back when the Nobel Peace Prize meant something, um, it went to those who prevented wars and conflicts. How great is your reward if you could pray an end to the potential conflict in Ukraine right now? How many lives would you actually save? That's why heroes like William Wilberforce can be attributed with such astounding heavenly fruit. As the leading abolitionist in England in the early 1800s, he rallied the English Empire to abolish slavery. He brought peace to his nation and ended its horrific trend of enslaving African peoples for the purpose of slave and trade labor. When the slave trade was ended in 1807, Prime Minister William Grenville called to bill a measure which will diffuse happiness among millions now in existence and for which Wilberforce's memory will be blessed by millions yet unborn. This is an example of a peacemaker. Abraham Lincoln can be considered a peacemaker, though he led the northern side in the American Civil War because he brought peace to the divided nation and liberty to the slaves of the American South. Peacemakers play a role in the kingdom of heaven. There is a distinction we have to draw, though. Peacekeepers keep peace through force, but peacemakers prevent conflicts through prayer and actions inspired by the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't say peacekeepers. He said peacemakers. Um, and feel free, whatever influence you have in society, wherever you are in society, whatever God has called you to, called you to do, that's where you make peace. That's where you bring peace. That's where God's peace comes into play. Wherever you see conflict, disagreement, um, and discord, that's where you can step in through prayer, uh, discussions, and bringing the peace of God to every situation. Jesus can't help but list the importance of persecution, for it is part of the Christian walk. Persecution is a fascinating thing. Take the Israelites under Pharaoh. First they were enslaved, then they multiplied. Somehow, they went from 70 peoples to 3 million in 400 years. That's increase, or better yet, multiplication. Then Pharaoh started killing the boys, and God rose up a deliverer. The nation that enslaved them would be severely punished. Out of their slavery came a nation unified as one with great wealth and might and covered by God. Let's just say this didn't go well for Pharaoh. The principle of persecution is multiplication and unity, at least when it comes to God's people. I would say modern America, and especially Canada, is tasting what it is like to lose their freedoms. And the result is unity like nothing before it, for popular movements are sweeping the land to restore freedoms and basic liberties. It's interesting how Jesus starts with humility, and he ends with persecution. These are the end caps of his character. Though Jesus could call on legions of angels, he didn't. Instead, he walked in meekness and humility. Clearly, the Sermon on the Mount is staggering in its depth. 
but we could we could camp here. I mean, like that one sermon series I heard for for weeks. But um, these beginning um, attributes of Jesus, uh, there are many of them. They're called the Beatitudes. Uh, we could call it. We're going to call it an episode here. Um, but we'll continue over the next couple episodes uh, the Sermon on the Mount because it tells you the the depths and the extent of Jesus's teachings and and really it's just all about the heart. Um, he he says why murder uh, when you can forgive you know um, you know he talks about lust and then he says it's um, it's not about committing adultery it's about looking at someone. Um, with lust. I mean, he takes it so much further than the law. Um, it's amazing how he comes to fulfill the law, but he actually creates a greater law. Um, giving is one thing. The Old Testament law, you know, says basically give 10% and God will bless you. And then basically in the New Testament, you'll find it later. He's basically saying, you know, surrender everything. <laughs> so such a deeper um, context and almost unwritten you know, Jesus isn't going to, they're not going to, it's not written in stone like the Old Testament law was, but it's written on your heart. And it's a complete change. And Jesus just gives us a taste of it um, in this Sermon on the Mount here. So the Sermon on the Mount was recorded by our note taker, the Apostle Matthew. It was it, it was almost like he, he took it down in shorthand, um, and then he just listed the whole thing out later. Um, because he was an incredible note taker. But there's one other version of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's from Luke 6. And it's shorter, it's it's kind of different. Now, now Luke wasn't an eyewitness. He was Paul's traveling companion. So, I mean, we're talking layers deep from being an eyewitness. Um, so he records a short set of the Sermon on the Mount, and even says he was spoken somewhere else. So it doesn't say it was a you know spoken as he was sat on the mountaintop. Um, it even appears that he was spoken in a valley or or a field somewhere, which which is fine uh, because Jesus probably spoke this sermon multiple times, like a traveling evangelist would, or different versions of it in different places. It contains much of the same material, uh, but he doesn't cover the list of Jesus' character like Matthew five, but it listed in a group of four blessings and four curses or for woes. Uh, the same sermon, but tailored to a different audience in a different location. Uh, perhaps the woes or opposites were added because he was speaking to the religious leaders in this case. We'll end our uh, first message on the Sermon on the Mount uh, from the version of Luke 6 um, with the four blessings and the four woes. Let it wash over you. And let the woes be a reminder that a righteous and loving and humble God is still a just God, who despite his great wisdom and patience and love, he still must judge the wickedness of this world. Luke six seventeen, He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him in healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed of you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. 
Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil, because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Check out the website, messagetokings.com, or contact us at messagetokings at gmail.com.